Support for WPR comes from the Madison Museum of Contemporary Art, an independent organization dedicated to creating experiences that educate, reflect, and inspire. More is at mmoca.org. Support for WPR comes from UW-Madison's Global Health Institute, hosting the Global Health Symposium with the Office of Global Health at the School of Medicine and Public Health, April 10th. ghi.wisc.edu. Welcome to another edition of Garden Talk. Hi, Larry Mueller here. And uh, you know what? The PBS Wisconsin Garden Expo is coming up, and it's going to be, oh my gosh, it's really coming up. It's the 9th through the 11th. And Lisa Johnson, UW Extension Horticulture Educator for Dane County, she'll be with us as will Brian Huddleston, the director of the Plant Disease Diagnostic uh, Clinic in the Department of Plant Pathology at UW-Madison. And the two of them will be joining me on Saturday, February 10th at the PBS Wisconsin Garden Expo. And we would love to have you come. We have 10 pairs of tickets to give away to the first callers who have a question or comment Again, we need you to ask a question or comment to get the tickets. Uh, The number to call is 800-642-1234, 1-800-642-1234. Or you could send us an email, the email address, ideas at wpr.org, ideas at wpr.org. Lisa Johnson will be with us in just a minute or two. Uh, Brian Huddleston with me right now. Brian, welcome. Hi, thanks, Larry. Thanks for having me on again. Well, I tell you what, you guys spend a lot of time uh, at Garden Expo, and you're going to be there, of course. What's your favorite part of the expo? I love interacting with everybody who comes in and asks questions. So that's just a ton of fun. It's very uh, and a, a very affirming sort of of program because um, people are very, very supportive of what I do and very complimentary. And it's kind of a nice little ego massage, I have to say, once I've been there for the three days. So you come you come home feeling pretty good. Yeah, it's it's a, a great experience. And I always lo- I love it when uh, you and I and Lisa have a chance to kick things off Saturday morning early. Yeah, that's a lot of fun. And it's just like doing this program, but live in, in front of an audience. It's pretty cool. And we usually give away, I think I give away, I have five or six gardening books that will have drawings. Mm-hmm. You just have people can, who come will be able to write their name on a slip of paper. We're not using it for marketing purposes or anything. We're just getting your name, and then uh, we draw the names out of the hat about every 10 minutes. Pretty soon we've given them all away. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Uh, and you'll have some slides maybe yes. of some of the diseases that were or problem areas that you saw. Yes, Lisa will be providing pictures of really pretty, healthy plants, and I will be <laughs> providing photos of some plants that don't look so great. So, um, with with uh, some labels, so you can learn a little bit while you're waiting for us to get the program started. Oh, that, that's great! 
Well, lots of people are online and uh, and almost ready to join in. They will be uh, pretty quickly. But, you know, we had some up and down weather this winter, including a lot of heavy snow. Uh, Brian, what damage can that kind of snow have on our gardens? Well, um, where I've particularly been seeing a lot of issues have been on arborvitae, which tend to collect a lot of that snow. And yeah. if there's a mass of snow, it can bend the branches down. And um, if that stays like that for an extended period of time, those branches can remain remain kind of bent over. And so you need to do something to try to retrain them so they're growing upward the way they normally would. And we we um, had a discussion about this with Laura Joll, who's our woody ornamental specialist here at the UW. And she suggested using some sort of of cording. The thing that she really recommended was old like hose, uh, pantyhose. Yeah. That sort of material that's nice and soft and pliable and gives a little bit and just very gently, you know, kind of raise those branches up once the snow has melted off, which in certainly here in that Madison, it has already. And then just kind of train those branches up and then very carefully put a, a strand of the, the sort of soft material around to keep them upward upright. And you need to be careful that it is a really soft material because if you use something like rope or wire or something of that sort, you're going to get some movement of the branches and that can rub the bark off with that hmm. um, a little bit more solid material. So you want something nice and soft and pliable. Yeah, it makes sense. What, what if despite all your efforts, you have a broken branch? Um, those you could probably go out. And in fact, the weather that we have right now um, is pretty good for pruning and just prune off that branch that's broken to clean it up a little bit. And then I always recommend whether you're pruning now or if you have to prune in the summer. I actually recommend for disease purposes pruning around this time of the year, but always when you're pruning, decontaminate your tools between cuts if at all possible. And my recommendation is to use something like 70% alcohol, which it would be rubbing alcohol, say, straight out of the bottle. Or you can use spray disinfectants uh, to kind of swab or to uh, wet the tools until they drip. Or if you're absolutely desperate, you could use a dilute bleach solution. Uh, you want the active ingredient in bleach is sodium hypochlorite. You want about a 0.5% final concentration of that active ingredient. But if you use bleach, very important after you're done pruning to really rinse those tools off and oil them because the bleach will uh, cause the tools to rust. Uh, Linda in Madison has a question uh, relating to snow damage, I believe. Let's go there. Linda, hi. Hi, yes. I have a mock orange that okay. took a lot of heavy snow and it like split it and bent it right over to nothing. Can that mm -hmm. be, how, how far down can I trim that without making it not come back? <laughs> Unfortunately, that's more of a, a question for Lisa. I don't know if she's gotten on. I know she was having some problems with parking. Uh, not quite yet, but she will be. Okay. On... She will be here, and we can ask her that question when she arrives. Okay, yeah. that sounds great. All right. Thanks a lot, Linda, for uh, calling. Appreciate your call. Lisa is back. L Lisa, are you there? Yes, I am. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> Uh, Brian, Lisa Johnson, by the way, UW Extension Horticulture Educator. And we had a question about mock orange. Yes, I, I heard it. Oh, uh, good. Bent down to the ground with uh, heavy snow. My condolences. Uh, I've got a few shrubs in that, uh, that state as well. Um, you want me to just go ahead and answer it? Sure. Okay. 
so mock orange, of course, should not be pruned in order to save the blossoms um, until, you know, sometime in uh, probably end of May or early, early June, as soon as it finishes blooming. But because if the branches are broken, then you can, uh, you know, prune it right back um, to the ground or just below wherever it's, um, it's uh, broken. Okay. And uh, it won't bloom this year. <laughs> no. If that's the case, unless there are some uh, flowers very near the ground. But I think a lot of us are going to be in, in that situation. Um, we'll just have to, to see. This is really kind of unprecedented. <laughs> yeah, it, it uh, would be indeed. We had really some really heavy snow across a good share of Wisconsin and dumped in a short order. You think there's going to be any disease come out of this, Brian? The The main issue is with those broken branches, whether there's any pathogen activity, those broken areas, open wounds could be an entry point for disease-causing organisms. But usually the sorts of organisms I would worry about wouldn't be particularly active in the temperatures that we had after that event, it was quite cold. So I don't know that I would necessarily expect a lot of disease um, from this uh, amount of snow that we've had. Uh, we do want at least some snow, quite frankly. I'm a little bit worried that it's all melting now because if all of a sudden we would get another cold snap where it gets really, really miserably cold like we had after the snow. We don't have any insulation from snow on the ground. So that means that the soil temperatures could potentially get down relatively low, and that can lead to some physical damage to uh, plant root systems. And we, we had a year, probably back around 2006 or so, where that happened. We had very little snow cover, it got really cold. And then as we got into the spring, there was a lot of branch dieback, but a lot of that appeared to be because the roots on the plants had gotten way too cold and it died and that inhibited water uptake. And because of that, the branches died back. So mm. I see I'm more concerned about physical injuries from environmental conditions rather than right. diseases at this point. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Go ahead, Lisa. Um, we could have things start to come out of dormancy. And then yeah. again, like Brian said, if we get a, a cold snap, that could be um, an issue especially with evergreens that don't go into uh, dormancy as deeply as our deciduous um, plants. And we might get snow mold <laughs> on the lawn. <laughs> Something else to think Yay. about. <laughs> oh, man. Dale in Stevens Point has uh, something for us. Uh, Dale, hi. Yes, uh, it's not exactly, I'm enjoying the show, by the way, it's, and it's not exactly about the snow cover, but we are planning our uh, lawn and garden for the upcoming uh, you know, warmer weather, uh, and we want to put a, a bed of uh, sunflowers out uh, in the front yard, uh, and there's some variety of sunflowers that we've occasionally seen. They're, they're sort of like dwarfs. They're kind of smaller than uh, a traditional sunflower. I was wondering if your guest there or, your, or you, Larry, might uh, know what this uh, variety is or where I could find it. Sure. Uh, Lisa, we'll turn sure. to you first. 
Yeah, there are um, actually a few uh, shorter sunflowers. Um, there's one that is uh, really short called teddy bear that is, uh, it hasn't got any, it, it's not going to produce any seeds. It's like a, a double, it's all um, ray flowers, all petals. Uh, then there are some uh, taller ones. I believe there's one called Junior. Um, I have, I, it's funny because I was um, loading some seed packets for community gardens the other day and I did come across some of these. Um, so again, I, I think that there are varying heights. Teddy bear is like two feet. Junior, I think is about four feet. And then there are a few others that are like five in the four to five foot range. And then, of course, you have the mammoth, which is huge. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, there are there are quite a few that are small. I think that if you just do a search, an Internet search for dwarf uh, sunflowers, you'll probably come up with a number and you can buy them from seed. Yeah, those juniors, you can even put those in pots. Yes. Yeah. And um there are some actually greenhouses around um, Madison that do sell uh, some of them already, you know, germinated. Of course, it's much more expensive that way, but, uh, you know, that you can use in pots. Yeah, yeah, for sure. we have any sunflower diseases that ever are a concern, Brian? Yeah. The big one I would worry about, um, I would definitely recommend, and this is true anytime you're gardening, uh, set up a good rotational scheme so that you're not replanting, say, your sunflowers in the same spot over and over again. The really big issue, and, and the reason, quite frankly, we used to have a pretty big commercial sunflower industry here in Wisconsin, yeah. and part of the reason it disappeared was because of a disease called white mold. It's a fungal disease, and sunflowers tend to be quite susceptible to that disease, and, and this is one of the more aggressive mm -hmm fungal pathogens that I see, and it has a fairly wide host range. So uh, snap beans or green beans are susceptible. If you're a soybean farmer, you've probably encountered this disease at some point. It will go to vegetable crops as well. And what's really horrible about the disease is when the fungus starts to mature, it forms these little structures that kind of look like mouse or rat droppings. They're <laughs> kind of elongate and black and very hard, and they're a resting structure of the fungus. And these will get mixed in the soil. And um, they can survive for many years, and they will germinate, form these little mushroom-like structures, and uh, those produce spores that can cause additional infections. What's interesting, a lot of plants, where they get infected is oftentimes through the flowers, which are a little bit more of a delicate tissue that the fungus is better able to infect. But interestingly, with sunflowers, I believe there's some research to indicate that the, those little resting structures can actually germinate to form fungal threads and can infect sunflowers through the root system. So um, it could be a nasty disease. And then there are some leaf diseases that we see. There are alternaria diseases. That's another type of fungus that will cause brown blotches on the leaves. And I'm trying to think, I've seen downy mildew um, on sunflowers in the past as well. So there are some things, but white mold is really the one the big that one. I worry about. Yeah, and if you get that in your garden, then you have to worry about a whole bunch of other plants that are susceptible as well we do have a fact sheet on white mold if you want to read more about this if you go to my clinic website which is pddc.wisc.edu and check in um, on the tab that says fact sheets that'll give get you to an alphabetical listing and look up white mold 
Dale, thank you it's so much. Yo, sorry. Go yeah, ahead. I, no, I'm, I'm sorry. It's an awesome disease. I love white mold. It's just so destructive. It's incredibly destructive. Amazingly destructive. Dr. Death, Brian Huddleston, yeah, one of our guests sorry, today. Bro. Lisa Johnson, the, the other guest, uh, UW Extension Horticulture Educator. Of course, um, Brian directs the Plant Disease Diagnostic Clinic. That's why that PDDC part of the uh, email uh, of the uh, on-site address, Plant Disease Diagnostic Clinic at UW-Madison. Tyler Ditter's our engineer today. Jill Nadeau, our producer. I'm Larry Miller for Garden Talk on the Ideas Network. You're listening to Garden Talk on the Ideas Network of Wisconsin Public Radio. Larry Miller here with my guests, Lisa Johnson and Brian Huddleston. Lisa, of course, the horticulture educator for Extension in Dane County. Brian directs the Plant Disease Diagnostic Clinic. And we're talking as well about um, the Garden Expo, which is coming up the 9th through the 11th. And uh, Lisa and Brian are going to be there a good share of the time. Uh, and we, the three of us will be together Saturday morning, I think 9.30 to 10.30. And uh, we'll be uh, doing a, a little program um, and giving away some books and actually, we're giving away some tickets for Garden Expo. We have 10 pairs we're giving away. And so if you call, you need to call with a question uh, or a comment. Um, but when you do uh, and you want a pair of tickets, we can get those for you. Ben in Menasha, we go to you. Hi, Ben. Hi. Um, my wife and I got into gardening late uh, last spring, kind of early summer. Uh, so this is our first full year going into it and we were just kind of wondering if there's anything we can do um you know now uh indoors prep wise um to, to kind of get ready for planting in the spring hmm what uh lisa maybe we go to you for that to start what kind of gardening are you doing ben we're doing vegetables um just you know uh, uh beans peas peppers and um also just uh, some some flowers some annuals Okay. Uh, well, what you can do is some planning work. Um, if you know what you planted last year, the idea of uh, crop rotation is important in vegetable gardening. Um, Brian can probably talk more about that. But what you want to do is rotate different families of plants, not just species, but families of plants in a three to four year rotation. So, I'll give you an example. If you planted tomatoes, the place that you planted tomatoes in, you can't plant tomatoes, potatoes, eggplant, tomatillos, or peppers in that same area uh, because they're all in the same family and susceptible to the same diseases and insect problems. So you would plant something in a different family there. So uh, we have a really great fact sheet on this that uh, is at the Wisconsin Horticulture website. So if you just do a, a search for Wisconsin Horticulture, uh, under the uh, vegetable tab, there is a fact sheet that has a listing of the different uh, families of vegetable plants and the different crops that are in them so that you know how to do your rotation. What I tell uh, people to do is either keep notes on what you planted where or just take a picture and keep that on file so that you know 
what you planted where, and you can uh, then do your crop rotation. Um, other than that, you know, you can get um, you can get labels ready, um, and uh, you can of course do seed shopping, which is one of the great pleasures of life. Um, <laughs> and you can do that if you're coming to the Garden Expo. There usually are some seed vendors there, but otherwise. You can look online if you're interested in um, heirloom seeds and, um, you know, seeds that uh, are open pollinated and so on. You could try looking at Seed Savers, which is a nonprofit that um, is in the Midwest here and uh, deals specifically in that. Otherwise, there are many uh, reputable seed companies out there that have um, a variety of, of seeds. Ben, there you go. Good luck with it, uh, with that new garden. Appreciate your call. Well, we've got another Ben in DeForest this time. Let's go there. Hi, Ben. Hey, thanks. You tricked me with your last caller. Um, thanks, thanks for having me on. My question, I'm looking to do some uh, low-maintenance planting. I have about a half acre of full sun DeForest, and I'm looking to do uh, disease uh, raspberries and then um, some either oak or other disease resistant. I was just like thinking about strains or any other recommendations anybody could give me. Well, that's a broad, that, that's a broad one, but what about the berries? Uh, maybe Lisa will go to you for that first to start. Yeah. Um, okay, so, uh, and Brian can talk about the disease aspects, but um, unfortunately raspberries are susceptible to a number of diseases, um, particularly if you have wild um, raspberries nearby, those can sometimes serve as a uh, reservoir for disease. That being said, there are some disease-resistant raspberry varieties, but the thing I would be more concerned about is the spotted wing drosophila, which is an insect that absolutely has been um, ravaging uh, raspberry plantings in Wisconsin for a number of years. We do have a fact sheet on that uh, at PJ Leash's uh, Insect Diagnostic Lab uh, site that you can, uh, you can check out. Um, we do also have a publication at the Wisconsin Horticulture site on growing raspberries in Wisconsin. It's a little bit dated um, in terms of varieties that are disease resistant. So you might also check out another uh, publication that we have, which is uh, growing fruits in southern Wisconsin or something to that uh, effect. And that has um, an updated list of not only disease resistant raspberries, but um, many other fruit types, uh, disease resistant or not, uh, that you can you can find there. Um, I'll let Brian talk yeah. about the oaks and oak wilt. Um, Brian's uh, mantra always is, "Show me a plant, and I'll show you a disease." So, um, when people <laughs> ask for something that's disease resistant, it's it's a bit of a conundrum. Sometimes. Yeah, it is indeed, Brian. Yeah, with oaks, um, no disease-resistant varieties that I'm aware of for oak wilts. That's no. the major disease in oaks. And um, that particular, it's a fungal disease. The fungus is usually initially brought in uh, by sap beetles, which will um, 
be attracted to trees that have been injured or have wounds. Um, and that's part of the reason you have to be very careful once uh, when you're trying to maintain oak trees that you do not prune them during the growing season. I usually recommend winter pruning for oaks because those wounds from pruning will attract sap beetles and they can potentially bring in this fungus. It colonizes the water conducting tissue, blocks it off and causes wilting and eventual tree death. So that's something to keep in mind. If you're planning on putting in oaks, I wouldn't necessarily discourage that because I love oak trees and oftentimes they do quite well. If you're going to have a particular oak, uh, perhaps it's gonna be a focal point in your landscape uh, that has really prominence and is very important aesthetically to what you're trying to do. Those could be candidates for doing routine uh, injections in the trees of fungicides that will help prevent oak wilt problems. Uh, those can get relatively expensive. You need to do them about every couple of years. And so I don't recommend it for every tree. But again, if you have a focal point tree, that might be an option for you. Um, if you have questions um, more on oak wilt, you're welcome to give me a shout. Um, my email is uh, pddc at wisc.edu, wisc.edu. I'm happy to answer questions on that sort of thing. We also have fact sheets on oak wilt on my website, which I mentioned earlier. Um, in terms of getting back to the raspberries, the problems that I tend to see with those um, there are certain uh, cane blight, um, spur blight, anthracnose. These are all fungal diseases that tend to attack the canes. Oftentimes you can manage those by having good spacing between plants and making sure that you're pruning properly uh, to remove older canes and open up the canopy to keep things a little bit on the drier side. As the patch ages, you're likely gonna see probably issues with root and crown rots, those organisms that cause those sorts of diseases are typically found in a lot of soils. And as you continue to grow your raspberries year after year after year in, the, in a given area, you're gonna build up those organisms and they will eventually cause problems. And then the other thing that tends to occur with raspberries is they're relatively susceptible to a wide range of viruses and they will build up a lot of these different viruses over time to the point where the plants really won't fruit particularly well. And so at that point, you establish a new uh, raspberry patch and then use new plants. Don't, don't transplant any of your old plants to the new area. There you go, Ben. Thank you so much uh, for calling. Appreciate your call. Ellen in Cedarburg will give you a chance now. Hi, Ellen. Hi. Um, I had one question, but no, I think I have another. I I am um, a new vegetable gardener. I grew um, my vegetables in pots and actually in five-gallon plastic containers. <laughs> I don't don't even know if that's a good idea, but I got good tomatoes and things. I'm wondering, I kept all my um, soil in the pots over the winter, and I'm, my first question had been, Will they? Will that soil uh, thaw earlier than regular, you know, so soil out on the landscape? Uh, the other question is, maybe I shouldn't be planting uh, tomatoes in the same um, soil, although it was enriched. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. How did your uh, tomato? Did you have any disease or any other kinds of issues? No. 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 Mm -mm. Okay. Yeah. Then from my perspective, from a disease perspective, if you really didn't see any disease issues, you probably could replant, but you are gonna to have to deal with fertility issues 
in in that soil and lisa perhaps you can comment on that uh, but i i like actually growing things like tomatoes in containers like you're talking about the five gallon because you can move them around into the sun where they get um a lot of air and the sun will dry them rapidly that'll help prevent a lot of the foliar diseases that i tend to see with tomatoes yeah lisa yeah um i i also grow tomatoes in um in pots uh, i grow them in larger pots than uh five gallon uh, and it's amazing the the roots that they have when i pull that soil out uh, or pull that plant out at the end of the year the whole pot is just filled with roots so i think that may be one issue with reusing um, that particular soil now if you were growing something like lettuce or um, you know radishes or something like that that has a very restricted root zone uh, and you were reusing that soil, I think you'd probably have an easier um, time of it. One other thing is that uh, soil can become very compacted in containers. So you might want to take it out and add some fresh, if not completely replace it. Um, I like to use a mixture of uh, composted manure or regular compost along with a bagged um, type of potting soil. Um, brand doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. The idea is that the bagged soil, which is actually soilless, um, will keep the soil kind of nice and friable and spongy and uh, the manure or compost will add the nutritional component. So, um, yeah that is something that I recommend, particularly for smaller containers. Also making sure that you have drilled sufficient uh, holes in those containers um, for water to um, drain out. There you go, Ellen. Good luck. Thank you so much uh, for calling. Appreciate it. Mary Lou and Monroe, thank you for calling. What can we do for you? Well, good morning. In anticipation of spring, this passionate summer gardener always has to get her seed started. And one of the things that sometimes I have trouble with is the timing of putting in the impatient plant and getting them so that they're ready to go come May. Not too leggy, nice and thick and solid little impatients like you get at the nursery. Mine tend to get leggy. When's a good time to start the impatient seeds and how do you keep them short and fat and not tall and leggy. Yeah. Um, so what kind of light are you using? Are you using um, artificial light or using windows or? I do both. I put them by the windows and I also have grow lights. And of course, for okay. impatience, I keep the hot pad under them to keep them right. nice and warm on the bottom. Yeah, they do uh, much better with bottom heat. Um, I, I have to be honest here and say that I haven't started impatience from seed myself. I know they can be a little fussy, and I know they do need uh, that bottom heat. Um, I'm wondering if what is going on is actually more like not having pinched them. Um, the ones that you're going to get in the garden center have been treated with um, um, growth hormones so that um, – Oh, it's actually an anti-growth <laughs> hormone. Uh, they call them PGRs, and uh, it's a growth regulator. 
And so that keeps things that are in, in pots or in packs nice and bushy. And so, you know, they're, they're grown to look nice in a four-and-a-half-inch pot or, or in a market pack. So that may be some of um, what's going on is that obviously you're not using that. Um, the other thing is if you keep anything like that uh, pinched back a bit, uh, that will encourage more branching out. Um, what I would do is I would check the packet and see what it says in terms of, you know, when to when to start it before the last frost. Depending on where you are, uh, whatever the last frost date is, um, you might want to, if you're wanting to put them in when they're a little bit smaller, start them a little sooner um, or closer, I should say, to I guess that would be later, <laughs> closer <laughs> to that date uh, so that they're smaller. So I, I think those are a couple things that you could do is the pinching. Um, if they're leggy, they're probably not getting enough uh, sun or light, so I might put those under your, your grow lights and see how they do. Um, so between pinching, starting time, and light, hopefully that will keep them a little bit um, shorter. And uh, if I have them, I'll usually, when I walk by them, I might run my hand over them as I walk by and just wave them yeah. a little bit to kind of strengthen them up because otherwise they're just sitting there and not doing anything in, inside. So Yeah, that, um, that, that is a technique that can be used with seedlings, kind of lightly brushing your hand over uh, them impatience is a little harder because it's yeah. such a, a brittle plant. Yeah. Uh, but the idea is that if the seedling was outside, it would be getting wind, and that helps it to grow a thicker cuticle and uh, also uh, put on more girth and height. Mary Lou, there you are. Thank you so much uh, for calling. And um, Bill in Mount Hor or Mount Morris, I'm sorry, we'll go to you. Hi, Bill. Hi, hi. Uh, my question is, uh, I want to, I want to, I want to graft some apple trees. I've grafted some in the past, but I want to try something different. I'd like to know if you think this is going to work. I have an invasive type of crab apple on my land. I think somebody told me it was a Russian crab apple. They're real small little apples, and they they grow apple trees everywhere. And I'd like to graft regular apple apples onto these. Do you think this is going to work? Hmm. Um, I'm a little worried that what you might have is not actually an apple, um, but maybe something that looks like it. Um, if you have any pictures of it, um, I'd, I'd love to uh, see that, because if it is a different species, uh, then it might not work um, very well. The other thing that I would worry about is um, possibly ending up with a lot of suckers uh, if it is something that's fairly weedy. Um, and, of course, they do select rootstocks for dwarfing and disease resistance. So you wouldn't be able to um, control any of that. Now, if you don't mind standard size uh, trees, um, that's what you might get. 
I just, um, without knowing for sure what this rootstock plant is, I'd be a little cautious about investing a whole lot of um, money and, and time into it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Brian, any comment? No, not really. Um, again, I agree with Lisa knowing what that plant truly is before going to all the effort of trying to graft would probably be a good idea. Yeah. So if you've got a picture, a photo, uh, Bill, it'd be worth it to, to, uh, to send it to, uh, Lisa, uh, and she can identify, you know, identify it and maybe <laughs> tell you whether or not it's worth a try. Uh, Lisa Johnson, our guest today, UW Extension Horticulture Educator. Brian Huddleston directs the Plant Disease Diagnostic Clinic in the Department of Plant Pathology at UW-Madison. I'm Larry Mueller for Garden Talk on the Ideas Network. listening to Garden Talk on the Ideas Network. Larry Miller here with my guest, Lisa Johnson, UW Extension Horticulture Educator for Dane County. Brian Huddleston directs the Plant Disease Diagnostic Clinic. So you can kind of tell by their titles that we can deal with a broad range of things on this program. And I'll mention again that the three of us will be at the uh, Garden Expo at the Dane County Expo Center on... uh, February 10th, Saturday, February 10th at 9.30 in the morning. We'll be doing a live presentation and hope you can make it uh, for that. Uh, Joan in Madison wondered where she can get a good quality or handmade broad fork. And I, you know, Liz Freemuth was on the show in December uh, from the garden hoe, and and there's one that she likes a lot, and I can't remember what it was. Uh, Lisa, Brian, do you guys have one that you would? Brian, you're shaking your head. No, Lisa, what about you? Yeah, sorry, um, I don't, <laughs> I don't have a source for one. They are wonderful tools, um, but I, if it were me, I probably would end up having to uh, to go online. Yeah, I'm. Um... I know there's one made here in Wisconsin. I think Liz liked it. Um, but I can't think of what it was now. Maybe maybe Liz is listening. She can call in and tell us. In the meantime, Judy go. Judy in Verona, it's your turn. Hi, Judy. Hello. I'm jumping ahead, but I have some peonies where the plants in their area have grown up, and so there's too much shade for them. Are there special steps I need to take in moving them to uh, an area with more sun, other than wait until after they blossom? Hmm. Uh, yes. Uh, actually, peonies should not be moved during most of the growing season. They should be moved in fall. Uh, so usually October when they've you know, started to go uh, dormant, And once you move them, they probably won't bloom the next year. So I just want to prepare you for that um, because they tend to have a year or so of transplant shock. Um, But when you when you move them, be really careful because they have very brittle roots. And also make sure um, if you're if you're doing it um, at a time when you can see 
um, the little pink, they call them eyes, they're actually buds. Um, those should be no deeper than about an inch and a half underneath the, the ground. Uh, one of the reasons peonies don't bloom is because they get uh, planted too deep. So make sure when you're replanting that you're either putting them at the same level or just a little higher. Judy, there you go. And I, I have a follow-up yeah, question ahead, for Lisa Brian. in this regard. Would you recommend dividing the clump? at the time of moving? Well, you can if they are, you know, overly crowded. Um, if you were going to do that, I probably would, um, I probably would bare root it, actually. I'd wash off all the soil, and I might do it even a little bit later then, more like towards the end of October. And, um, you know, then you can see the root system. Because it's really easy with peonies, and I've done this myself. Uh, I tried dividing it with um, without knowing what the root system looked like, and I ended up um, killing the plant because <laughs> I sliced off a, um, too much of the main root. So, yeah, they are a bit fussy and uh, tough to, to do that with. A lot of people actually uh, buy their peonies bare root in the fall. Um, and that, um, that can be a really nice time to plant them. I've gotten some, you know, of the more, um, fancy varieties, uh, that way. Okay. The reason I was asking was because one of the cautions I was going to say, if you did recommend dividing, and this goes whenever you're dividing other clump plants as well as be very careful to adequately, uh, clean tools. Uh, between mm. plants, there are, there are some viruses you can pick up if you have a plant that's infected with certain viruses. And the big one on peony is tobacco rattle virus. You can pick that up on contaminated sap on a cutting tool. And then if you divide other plants, you can actually inoculate the other plants. So using a really soapy solution, uh, we usually recommend a uh, about a 10% shampoo solution because that contains sodium lauryl sulfate, which is a nice foaming agent. And then there's an, a lab detergent called Alkanox that you can buy online. And it's about a 10% uh, shampoo solution. And then add about two and a half tablespoons of the Alkanox. You make a nice soapy solution and that will deactivate plant viruses. And I did get a text from Liz, by the way, uh, yes. Larry, and she says it's Bully Tools. Yes, Bully what Tools she recommends. is the title. And I, I went on, I got the same message and I went online and, and looked and yeah, they've got quite a, a nice arrangement. And she she likes them for uh, all handled garden tools, she says. so. Nice. Hi, Liz. <laughs> <laughs> thanks liz and judy in verona thank you for calling oh boy let's go to barb and lacrosse next barb hi hi i am interested in um knowing how to get baptisia grown from seed i've collected a couple of pods of the wild white version and over the years, I've tried a couple of different methods of getting them to sprout, and I just am not having any success. And I um, am interested in knowing what you might share. And I'm looking forward to coming to the garden show next weekend. Hopefully, I get to see your program, Larry. Thank uh, Barb, thanks very much. Indigo, I think we're talking about here. Yeah, yeah, wild indigo. Um, Barb, have you tried the winter sown method, or have you tried um, refrigerating the seed? 
Well, um, actually, I've tried just um, in the winter sown where I either I've, I've tried burying the pods themselves. I've tried opening the pods and kind of scruffing the seeds up a little bit with some sandpaper. Um, mm-hmm. So that's that's what I've done. <laughs> yeah, I um, soaking can help, too. Um, but they do need a, a cold period. So if um, if you have them dry right now, um, what you might want to do is put them into, um, you, you could use something like even um, like a coffee filter that's um, wetted and put it in a plastic bag and, you know, put the, put the seeds, you fold, you put the seeds in the coffee filter, fold the coffee filter over and then uh, put it in the refrigerator um, in the sealed uh, Ziploc bag. And uh, sorry about the noise here. Oh, you're fine. Uh, how, how long would you, uh, how long a cold period do you need? Well, it's a good idea to have it be um, a couple of months, okay. if at all possible. So you might want to do it now and take them out in um, maybe end of March or early April and see if you've got anything. Um, soaking them really does help to break that seed coat, but they've also got that dormancy um, issue that, like with most wildflower seed from our part of the country, it's it's going to need that cold period. So that um, wet stratification um, can be helpful. Now, I don't know whether they have um, a a double dormancy where they might need actually two years of, of that. I'd have to look that up. Um, I've only grown the, the annual type from seed and I was just able to, you know, go ahead and, and soak it because it didn't need a cold period, but I know the other one will need at least um, a couple of months. All right, Barb, thank you so much. Glenn in Wisconsin Dells uh, has a question about potato diseases. He's getting soil trucked in and is wondering if there could be disease in the soil. Also, any other changes he should know to uh, prevent potato diseases, Brian? Yeah, there's always a possibility whenever you're moving soil from place to place that you could bring in disease-causing organisms. This isn't only in the context of growing potatoes, but quite frankly, for growing any type of plant. So you do have to worry about bringing in um, things like possibly verticillium. It's a fungal pathogen that has a fairly wide host range, including potatoes. Uh, you could bring that in in soil. You could bring in root rot organisms. You could bring in, again, talking specifically about potatoes. You could potentially bring in uh, a bacterium that causes a disease called scab that can cause some kind of surface malformations, kind of roughening, a scabby sort of appearance to the tubers. So that's all potentially an, an issue. For scab, though, if you are able to lower the pH far enough of the soil, um, you can actually control that culturally. The scab tends to be more of an issue in high pH soils, which uh, unfortunately here in Wisconsin we tend to have. But if you can lower the pH down to, again, you're probably not going to want to go down this far if you're trying to grow other vegetables. But if you can get the soil pH not about 5.2, 
then you really don't see a problem with the scab organism. So that's a possibility, but as a compromise, if you're growing other vegetables, getting it down to maybe around six, maybe a little bit higher than that would probably be a good balance so you can grow other types of vegetables. Um, the other pathogens that we worried about, worry about, there's certain fungal leaf disease-causing organisms. Those potentially can blow in on wind currents, so you're not going to be able to do much about those uh, from the standpoint of, of bringing in soil. So early blight is a disease that's common on potatoes, and also late blight. Uh, we see that every once in a while cause issues in home gardens. It's really a big problem, uh, potential problem for commercial potato product producers here in Wisconsin. So I'm trying to think of other things you might see on potatoes, but scab would be a big one. And uh, again, that might be associated with uh, soil that you're bringing in. We do have a fair number of fact sheets on potato diseases that you can find on the clinic website if you wanna go there and kind of peruse through the um, fact sheets. You can actually search by uh, type of plants. So if you look, uh, search by vegetable crops, that'll kind of pare down the number of fact sheets you have to look through. We have 130 titles there. So, um, but those are the things I can think of off the top of my head. And again, if, if you have other questions, feel free to email me. pddc.wisc.edu is the website. Yeah. And the email address is the same, except you replace that first period with a at sign. So it's pddc at wisc.edu. Colleen and Wanakee, hi. Uh, what's on your mind? Oh, hi. Uh, first, I'd like to say that after listening to the first part of this program, it makes me wonder how any of us can keep anything alive um, <laughs> ever um, with, without a PhD in in all all things botany. But um, so my my question, I have what I refer to as a fake compost. Uh, um, situation because I'm not sure it's ever gotten hot enough to really do the job. My husband built about a four by four by four, um, you know, structure, and we've been putting um, vegetable scraps and sometimes some leaves and, and things in it. And periodically, maybe every five years, I scrape the top half off and take the bottom and spread it around the garden. But we are, we're kind of running up to the top of the hour. Is it okay? If the compost isn't hot, is it okay, Lisa? You won't be killing off diseases or weed seeds, um, but otherwise it rots just fine, and you can uh, use it as long as you don't have problems with either of those. All right, there you go. Thank you, uh, Colleen, for calling. Appreciate your call. Lisa Johnson, UW Extension Horticulture Educator for Dane County, and Brian Huddleston, Director of the Plant Disease Diagnostic Clinic in the Department of Plant Pathology at UW-Madison. I'm Larry Mueller for Garden Talk on the Ideas Network.
You're listening to Garden Talk on the Ideas Network. Larry Mueller here with my two guests, Brian Huddleston and Lisa Johnson with us. Brian directs the Plant Disease Diagnostic Clinic at the UW-Madison. Lisa is a UW Extension Horticulture Educator for Dane County. Questions, gardening questions for them, plant disease questions. Give us a call. The number is 800 or you could email us to ideas at wpr.org ideas at wpr.org Tom in Madison has a question let's go there hi Tom good morning Larry Lisa and Brian I just sent uh, via email to your ideas at wpr.org two pictures of a peach tree in my backyard and I know that these go dormant in the winter and I'm thinking uh, with the vagaries of our weather that I may have missed the moment say about two weeks ago uh, when the weather was very cold to uh, get out there and uh, do some pruning on this tree. And I'm, uh, since I've sent pictures, uh, hopefully you can see those and tell me what you think. It's clearly got some little buds developing. Uh, we don't have the photos up yet, but uh, maybe perhaps we'll get them up. Uh, it, but Lisa, well, or Brian, uh, pruning right now, what do you think for that peach tree? I would not prune right now. Um I would wait until the temperatures um, drop um, because it's supposed to be in the, good Lord, in the 50s um, next week. Um, I'm, I'm kind of worried, I have to say, about uh, a lot of our fruit trees, particularly ones like peaches that bloom very early, apricots, and that are marginally uh, hardy here. Um, you want to make sure the plant is fully dormant at the time that you're pruning. Um, and I should add, not just for those, but things that need to be pruned during the dormant season, like elms and oaks. Um, the, the beetles that carry elm, uh, Dutch elm disease and oak wilt become active at 50 degrees. So you need to, when you're pruning, um, those particular species make sure that you have, um, you know, below freezing temperatures for at least um, 48 hours or, or more um, before and after you make the cut because you want it to um, you want it to dry off and so on so that it's not attractive um, to those beetles. Now, if you don't have that problem with peaches. Um, there may be disease issues. I'll, I'll let Brian uh, talk about that, but I would want to make sure that it's going to be cold, and I, yeah. <laughs> I don't have a lot of faith that that's going to be the case at the moment. Right. Brian? Yeah, the, the main issue I'd worry about on peaches, and this also is a problem on cherries and plums, any of the stone fruits would be uh, bacterial canker. And that particular, it's a bacterial pathogen. There are actually a couple of bacteria that can cause that particular issue. One of them, interestingly, tends to be quite common in the environment. It's actually part of the normal 
microflora, so the normal group of microorganisms that live on plant surfaces. And uh, whenever um, wounds occur, that kind of in branches or in trunks, that it can allow the organism to get into interior tissue where it can actually act as a, a pathogen. The typical symptom that I see with that uh, disease is development of blobs of sap on infected branches and then eventual branch dieback. So you need to be aware of that. I, I'm always leery to recommend, quite frankly, peach trees to people because I think they're so marginal in terms of survivability here in Wisconsin. So um, I, I often think of them as, quite frankly, kind of annuals. Um, rather than perennial trees. But um, I watch for those blobs of sap. If you see those, you really need to reprune and prune down probably about 12 inches below where you see those blobs of sap. Um, but peaches are tough in my, yeah. in my mind, quite frankly. And you need to disinfect your tools between cuts right. too, right? Yeah, yeah, I always recommend that for any time you're doing pruning. Um, again, with the bacterial canker, if it's Pseudomonasurini pathovarsurini, which is this real common organism, it's out there in the environment all the time. So even if you're pruning tools, um, the plants are probably, the, the trees are probably going to be exposed to that particular organism. It's just around and quite common. Yeah. So it's, it's best, again, to do that when, as Lisa pointed out, when it's relatively cold so that that organism really isn't active and you can get the cut surface of the tree dried down so it's not a good entry point for the pathogen. Tom, thank you. Appreciate it. Alton in Blair, Wisconsin, we'll turn to you. Hi, Alton. Well, uh, good morning, good afternoon. Um, I have some Dunstan chestnuts that I harvested from my brother's trees and I'd like to try to uh, grow them. I have them in the refrigerator now. I took the husk off of them. I'm wondering, just having any suggestions on how to do that? Chestnuts. Uh, yeah. Um, I unfortunately, you know, I've heard of the Dunstan chestnut. I even, you know, did a little bit of um, research reading on it, but I don't remember what the protocols are for growing it from seed. Um, there is a, a really nice resource if, if you're interested in growing trees or other woody plants from seed as, you know, something that you're going to be doing a lot, you might want to invest in Michael Durr's book uh, on um, woody plant propagation. That's Durr, D-I-R-R. Um, unfortunately, I'm not in my office right now, so I can't um, I can't look that up. Uh, but that's that's an excellent book for that uh, kind of thing. I hear that book recommended, Michael Durr's book recommended by many folks. It is a very good book. Uh, Alton, good luck with that. Thank you, uh, Grace in New Glarus. Your turn. Hi. Hi. Um, I have a feeling you're going to make the same recommendation to me that you just made to the last caller <laughs> about getting Michael Durr's book on propagating woody plants, because my question is, do you have any suggestions for propagating magnolias? Hmm. I have an Ann magnolia yeah, that um, blooms. Oh, I'm sorry, Grace? I, I have an Ann magnolia. It blooms several times a year, and it, it's growing out of its space. I need to prune it 
so yeah, I want to try to propagate some of the prunings. Yeah, um, I don't know whether that comes true from seed. Um, really, am not sure whether you know whether what you grew out would be like that plant or or not. Um, I know Anne tends to be a, a shorter magnolia, but I don't know whether those traits would would come through. Um, just like most tree seedlings, you would need to give it some sort of cold period and probably wet stratification in, um, you know, moist soil in a, um, a baggie in the refrigerator. But I really don't know. I'd have to look at Michael's book uh, to, to see what the particulars are on that. All right. Get a hold of, uh, you know, the, that book is sometimes available in the, the local libraries as well because it is a very popular book. You might be able to grab it from, the, from uh, your local library, uh, Grace. Or if you, uh, if you send me an email, I'll look it up for you. <laughs> <laughs> What's your email? Uh, my email is johnson.lisa at County of Dane, that's all one word, all lowercase, dot com, johnson.lisa at countyofdane.com. Christian in Wisconsin Rapids, we're on to you now. Hi, Christian. Give me the forklift for that plate up there. Hi, this is Kristen. I'm glad to hear your voice and take your, have you take my call. Um, I, I have two questions. They're very unrelated. The first one is, is it possible for maple sap to start running right now? Is it a good idea to tap your trees? And if they refreeze, do you have to retap them? And second question is, I have some bulbs that I got to plant, and I left them out to freeze, but I didn't get them planted. Can I still stick them in right now if I have a possibility of getting them in the ground for this spring? Okay. Okay. Uh, let me start with the bulbs first. Um, are the bulbs in a pot, or are they just in a bag or something? They're just in bags. I stuck them in my camper, so they got froze. They, you know, they think they're they're in winter. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, not sure how well those will survive, uh, but you you could, if you wanted to put them in um, pots. They probably have been cold enough that you would, you know, be able to force them into bloom. If you're wanting to plant them in the ground, however. Um, you could put them in pots and, you know, water it and stick them back out in your camper. Um, again, without a lot to protect them and how cold it was, I'm not sure how viable they're going to be. Uh, but you could, you know, you could certainly try that. Um, about the maple syrup tapping, um, that's not an area I have a lot of um, experience in um so i i don't feel real comfortable trying to answer that question with the the small knowledge base that i have on that you might be able to find your answer though in the there's a wisconsin maple syrup uh, producers website and i believe they have some educational um uh, publications there, and they might even have a an email or a phone number where you could submit that question. 
Christian, good luck. Thank you for calling. And Mary in New London, uh, we'll go to you. Hi, Mary. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Say, I had a, a suggestion for the woman who's trying to germinate um, baptisia or indigo seeds. Um, as I recall, indigo is a legume in the legume family. And for legume seeds to germinate, I think they need an inoculum. So uh, some kind of inoculum applied to the seeds to help them germinate. Hmm. That's not a bad idea, actually. Thank you for that uh, suggestion. I'd still give them, you know, the the cold um, moist, but uh, the inoculum could be helpful. Yeah, yeah. There you go, Mary. Uh, thank you very much for that suggestion. Appreciate it. Lisa, before we go any further, I wanted to uh, have you talk a bit about the green thumb gardening classes that are going on this winter. Oh, thank you. Uh, so we have an annual series of green thumb gardening, vegetable gardening classes that I run um, over Zoom. Um usually starting sometime in January and running through a couple of weeks into March. And we have some really great guest speakers. Uh, I do some of the lectures as well. In fact, last night I was talking about um, special gardening techniques, vegetable families and crops within them and some tips with that and I also talked about integrated uh, pest management um, versus organic uh, gardening and, you know, some some uh, techniques for both of those. And uh, we have, I think, about four or five more um, classes left yet. We don't have any classes coming up next week because we have this little thing called Garden Expo, and I'm going to be busy. Uh, But we will have Brian on as one of the speakers. Um, I believe the week of uh, Valentine's Day, I think, is um, Russ Groves, uh, one of our entomologists, who's going to be talking about vegetable insects. And we will have Claire Strader um, a little later in the series talking about cover crops. And if you want to hear Claire, this is the last time she's going to be uh, running this class for us. So um, you might want to check that out. You can register for Green Thumb Gardening classes at the Dane County Extension website. And uh, if you just um, do an Internet search for... Dane County Extension, and then go to the Horticulture tab, um, you should be able to find that, or you can just type in Green Thumb, and you should be able to find that. So Um, We will also be doing a spring series that will start in March, uh, where I'll be talking about various spring-themed things, like Wisconsin spring wildflowers. We'll talk about uh, growing berries and uh, have... um, a talk about uh, native plants and pollinators, and then uh, um, one session on sun perennials and one session on shade perennials. Mm. And uh, if you do the whole series for the spring series, you can get a slight discount in the the price. It's only $10 per class instead of 12 If you just do selected sessions, it's $12 a class. 
So lots of good information, and it's Zoom, so it doesn't matter where you, where you are. <laughs> You're going to be able to get it. Uh, yep. Not just for Dane County uh, folks, for everybody. Uh, Brian, what are you going to be talking about in that series? Uh, I do a vegetable disease talk for uh, Lisa and in that particular session. And then I also have a series of monthly talks that I sponsor that are free talks. Uh, they're on Wednesday evenings, a couple of hours, and we talk about various aspects of plant diseases. If you're interested in finding out about those, um, again, go to my clinic website, pddc.wis.edu. If you, there's a menu along the left-hand side of the main page and kind of scan down and it'll say monthly disease talks and you can click on that link and it'll give you a list of the different talks I'm giving for 2024 and then a link to a registration form. So feel free to take advantage of those. Kim emailed us that her entire yard is infested with jumping worms. So <laughs> How sad. can she garden yeah. with them present is her question. Well, there is life after jumping worms. Um, I have them too. Um, it's it's difficult, um, but it seems, and this is purely anecdotal here, but it seems that the uh, population eventually uh, goes down after they've used up a lot of their soil resources. I would say uh, if you... If on, on your garden areas, um, if you can not mulch for a couple of seasons, that will really help um, remove a, a great food source for them. Uh, there are some, well, there is one product that you can use in an experimental fashion, um, not recommending this for wholesale, you know, use, uh, but if you want to try it as an experiment, um, there is a, uh, a product that's based on tea seed meal, and um, there used to be one called Early Bird, but that one is no longer being produced. Um, so I've, I know there is one called Castaway, and then there's another one um, that I, I'm blanking on the, uh, the name of, and these are granular products. They're basically that tea seed meal the castaway is in pellets, which I don't like quite as well as the granules, um, but you it's basically an organic fertilizer. And one of the uh, saponins in that uh, product irritates the membranes of uh, worms' skin. Now, it will get your, um, your earthworms as well as your jumping worms, but if you have a bad infestation of jumping worms, you probably won't have many earthworms because they outcompete those. But anyway, what that does is it brings them to the surface, and then you can collect them in, uh, you know, a, a bucket of soapy water. Um, I do recommend interring them as soon as they are dead because dead jumping worm is a vile odor, and it will attract flies. Um, also, police your your uh, if you use um, that product. Um, and you do have to water it in pretty heavily. Um, you're you're going to have to police and make sure that you've uh, gotten all of the uh, worms that come up to the surface and die. Um, I didn't get them all the first time, and I was able to locate them 
by the smell and by the uh, the flies, uh, the ones that I didn't get. Um, it was pretty unpleasant, but uh, it was effective. Um, so, yeah, if you want to learn more about it, uh, I believe Brad Herrick might be giving his um, presentation at Garden Expo again. I'm not sure, but you can uh, you can certainly find the one that he the talk he did do at Garden Expo a couple of years ago online. Uh, if you just um, do an internet search for Brad Herrick, uh, last name H E R R I C K, and uh, it give he gives a lot of information about jumping worms. But I wish there was a silver bullet treatment out there, uh, but there's just this experimental one, and I would try it in a small area first. Wisconsin Garden. Yeah, here we are just about out of time. So I did want to mention Wisconsin Garden Expo is the 9th through the 11th. If you type in Wisconsin Garden Expo, you're going to get the whole list of uh, topics. And, of course, Lisa and Brian are going to be there a good share of the time to, and you can talk with them in person. And certainly you can talk with them in person on Saturday morning at nine thirty when Lisa and Brian will be present uh, with me. And uh, we're going to do kind of a little garden talk show uh, live. And we usually have a packed house. Uh, so please come. We'd love to have you. And we did get, we did have 10 people, uh, get tickets, so we're probably going to have at least 10 pairs of people. I'm expecting uh, more like the hundreds. <laughs> so <laughs> thanks again, you two, and thank you for listening. Monday, uh, Valentine's Day coming up, we'll talk about the science of candy making on Monday and check in with a Wisconsin florist about what it's like to work in that industry. Stay with us. I'm Larry Mueller for the Ideas Network.